Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest served as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Barack Obama, Austin Goolsby. You are all over CNN and MSNBC, so I am honored you took the time to join me today. Good afternoon, Austin. Hey, great to talk to you again, Elizabeth. How's it going down there? It's okay. We're just figuring out how not to just eat, sleep, and work, right? Isn't that what everyone's doing? Yeah, exactly. Getting a little stir crazy, but what are you going to do? Let's start with your education. You received both an MA and a BA in economics from Yale, your PhD in economics at MIT. How does a guy from Waco, Texas find himself years later as one of the economic policy advisors for the president? (laughs) Well... I guess it was a weird route, but I was born in Waco, Texas. My dad's family's from Waco. My mom's family's from Abilene. They moved outside Los Angeles when I was a kid, when I was little. So I mostly grew up out in Whittier, outside of L.A., and then I ended up going to school back back east. And from there, I got into economics. I had some good teachers, and that's what I was interested in. And the rest, you know, just played itself out. Went to Chicago. I met my wife, who is, is from New Jersey, but but we met in school, or I say we met in college. She says she didn't know who I was. We re-met when I was in graduate school. We got married. I went to Chicago, and that's kind of how it happened. All right, let me pick up from there. You became Barack Obama's economic advisor for his successful 2004 U.S. Senate campaign. You were also the senior economic advisor to the 2008 presidential campaign. Obama had a lot of people to choose from to guide him in economic policy. What made you stand out? (laughs) Yeah, he didn't at the beginning. He taught over here at the University of Chicago, where, where I am. He was at the law school. Michelle was way more famous than he was. She had a huge job at the university. And uh, his daughters, our oldest is a daughter and was at the lab school right in between his daughters. So I kind of knew him as the guy from the birthday parties and, and stuff like that. He was my state senator and he started, he decided he was going to run for the U.S. Senate in like 2003, 2004. And so his policy person, when you run for the Senate, it's like running for president in that you're getting asked about all these national issues. But it's totally different in that nobody wants to do anything for you. So his person called me and said, they called a for, for friend of mine. And that person said, look, I have never heard of this guy. You should at least call someone from Illinois and gave them my name. So they called me and they said, would you be willing to help us? And I was like, you're talking about Michelle Obama's husband? I was like, of course, of course I will help. What are you talking about? So I started working for him then. And then fast forward to, you know, 2006, 2007 kind of time frame. He called and I talked to him and he said, you know, he was he was thinking of running for president. And he said, is that something that you could spend a lot of time working on? And at the time, I was thinking, well, you know, my research is very important. I don't know if I have time for this. And it was my wife who said, hey, you always liked him and you always thought he was great. And if he ran and he lost, well, you know, which he probably will, wouldn't you be kicking yourself that like he ran for president in your own hometown and you didn't lift a finger and do anything? I said, yeah, I probably would be kicking myself. She's like, so fine. So take five months. And write one less academic paper and do this. So I did, yeah, wise woman. And five years, six years later, I had been to Washington. We've been the whole thing and uh, we were moving back. So 
Mostly it was serendipity, I'd say. The current administration doesn't seem to have the focus or the attention span to focus on anything about the economy, the nuts and bolts of it. When you had President Obama's ear, was he focused on the economic health of this country? Oh, God, yeah. And I mean, that, that was true before the financial crisis and the recession. But then once that started, so in the middle of the campaign, you know, September, October of 2008, we start going into free fall, economic free fall, which until now seemed like about the scariest moment in the history of the economy, you know, since we've been alive. And it was literally the number one priority, almost all that the man could think about. They used to say, what are you going to be your priorities? He had a bunch of things. And once the financial crisis began, he said, my number one priority is prevent this from becoming a Great Depression. And so it certainly felt very different from the, at least the external vibe that that I get from the current administration. But, you know, I'm, I'm not in there, so I, so I can't tell. As an outsider, though, we can all kind of tell. Yeah, you can kind of tell. And then there's a funny coda on this, which is now that the pandemic has been raging, it's almost seems like the only thing that the president and the White House can think about is the economy. And and in a very short run way of like, well, I want to force everybody to go back out and go back to work. It's just a a bit of a disconnect. I have felt like they needed more sustained thinking about economic policy rather than just riding the wave of inheritance that they got. I thought the tax cut of 2017 was $2 trillion of mostly giveaways nonsense, wasn't really about increasing the growth rate at all. And now, if any moment requires thinking about something else, which they have mostly been doing, it would be now. But now they can't think about anything else. Now all they want to do is try to shove everybody back out, you know, who who might have the virus to, to give it to others. You don't want to live even rent free in President Trump's head. So I'm not going to live in there, but I can't figure out what their motivation is. Let's go back to the time you were in the White House. Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee now. How involved was he in meetings and economic policy decisions in the Obama White House? Oh, I'd say he was pretty involved. And I loved working with him. And I admire him so deeply just as a person and as a decent man. He, At the time I was there, I was in the first term of Obama. His chief economist was a guy, Jared Bernstein, who's a good friend of mine and a uh, specialist in labor, kind of labor economist. And I found Vice President Biden to be most involved on the issues that I was working on, on re-regulating the financial sector, on the autos rescue, and thinking about the stimulus. Those were kind of three areas of direct overlap that I had with the vice president. And I found him quite impressive. Separate from policy, my son, who's now older, a teen, He was just a little kid then, and he was really into machines and especially airplanes. I came home from work one day, and it was was very stressful. I mean, we're in the middle of economic crisis, the whole thing. So I come back. My son says, Dad, did you ever fly on Air Force One? And he's about five years old, baby. I say, yeah, I have. 
really? He said, do you know Vice President Joe Biden? Yes. He's the pilot of Air Force One. I said, no, uh, no, he, he's the vice president. He's, he's not the pilot. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. The vice president is the pilot of Air Force One. Okay, so he, he insists on that. And, <laughs> and, and I just let it be. If that's what he wants to dream his dream, that's fine. So, you know, weeks would go by. My, my son would always ask me, did, well, did you talk to Vice President Joe Biden today, Dad? Yes, I did, son. It was always, what did Vice President Joe Biden say? So fast forward maybe a year, year and a half. They have a lovely gathering once a year, once every two years or something for everyone in the cabinet and their families go to Camp David. And it's kind of like a picnic family day at, at Camp David. It's, it's, it's quite wonderful. Uh, and the vice president was there. So we pull up. I park our car. We get out. There's a vice president. He loves kids. He waves. And I walk up and I said, wow. I said, Mr. Vice President, I need to introduce you to your biggest fan. And he's like, well, young man, who are you? I said, this is Emmett. I said, Emmett, let me introduce you to Vice President Joe Biden. And my son's like, you are Vice President Joe Biden? And he's like, yes, I am. He said, you are the pilot of Air Force One? And Joe Biden says, what? No. And then my son's like, oh. And then he just turns and walks away. He's like totally uninterested if he's not actually the pilot of Air Force One. And Joe Biden's like, what just happened? <laughs> that is an amazing story. Oh, that is so perfect. All right, I need you to explain this next concept to me as if I am in kindergarten, Austin. Last time the Federal Reserve cut the interest rates to zero, they did this back in 2008, and they recently did it again when the global economy sank into a major recession. Now, who does this help, and who does it hurt? The Fed mostly controls the short-run interest rate. That's what the Fed does. And when they feel like the economy is slowing down, they cut the interest rate. And that's supposed to make it so that you could refinance your mortgage, so that companies that are trying to do investments might, might say, ah, oh, it's going to be cheaper. You know, well, let's go take out a loan and build a factory. And consumers might buy cars, might buy appliances, you know, anything on loan. Anything that you borrow money for, a low interest rate is going to help. So that's why the Fed tries to stimulate through monetary policy. In that sense, that's who should be helped is anybody who's going to borrow money or they're trying to encourage people to spend. If all you're doing is saving, you'll get a lot of people who say, well, if the interest rate is low, you know, I'm not getting enough return on my savings. And, you know, a lot of my parents' friends would say that they're retired. They'd be like, these low rates are killing us. We need higher rates because we want to earn a rate of return. And I would say, the Fed is trying to send you a signal that they want you to go spend your money, not save your money. That's why they're cutting the interest rate. So in a way, it's kind of on purpose that your savings isn't giving you as much a rate of return. Now, that said, the second part of your question, it leads directly into, and what should the Fed do once it hits zero? Because how do you cut the rate? So their normal thing is, Ooh, looks like the economy's in trouble. Cut the rate. Well, once you get down to zero, now what do you do? What gift do you give the person who has everything? Okay, so you, what do you do as the Fed 
if you've driven the interest rate that you control down to zero? And the answer is they engaged in what the euphemism they gave it is unconventional monetary policy, which means they started buying up mortgages, treasuries, a whole bunch of things to try to get other interest rates to go down. Okay, so they bought up mortgage-backed securities in an effort to try to get long-term mortgage rates to be lower with the thought of, well, maybe people will refinance, maybe more people will buy a house and, and stuff like that. And now they're engaged in that effort. They did that in the financial crisis, and now they're engaged in that effort in a huge way in all sorts of things, small business loans and municipal bonds and big business loans and a, a bunch of things. They're just trying to get the interest rate down to stimulate the economy. I don't think it's gonna work because I don't think when you're in this environment, we've just gone through 10 years of extremely low interest rates. So if somebody was waiting to refinance or to buy an appliance or to build a factory or something, ah, I just want the interest rate to get a little bit lower and I'm ready to pull the trigger. You would have already pulled the trigger. Wait, 10 years we've had that. So now I think the Fed is in a bit of a pickle. That's why they're cutting the interest rates to zero. It's why they're expanding all this stuff. It's what they should do. It's just, I don't think it's going to be that effective. In 2011, you left the administration. You returned to the University of Chicago. You said the economy was, quote, a million miles from where it started. Do you feel that the economy is heading back to where we were in 2008? Are we ever going to rebound from this current mess? Hey, oh, God. Let's hope that we rebound. I mean, it's headed back. It's beyond headed back. We got to 2008 and then we were worse. This is the worst three weeks in the history of the American job market. If you looked at people filing for unemployment, the all-time record was 500 and something thousand people in a single week filing for unemployment. We've had 16 million people file for unemployment in the last three weeks. I mean, we we set the weekly record by a factor of 10 two weeks in a row. And before that, we set it by a factor of five. So there's never really been anything like this. And of course, everybody knows what happened. We're all sheltering in place. And most of the U.S. economy is based on services. And they're exactly the kind of things that get pulled down when everybody is afraid and pulls away. We can't really come back until we get out of lockdown. When we get out of lockdown, I do think it's possible if we haven't done a, too much permanent damage that we could go back, maybe not fully to where we were before this started, but we could come back comfortably. But to get out of lockdown, I, I wish somebody would explain to the president, A, this is a decision of governors, not the president. But even if it were the decision of the president, you can't get the economy to come back by just ordering people, hey, everything's fine. You can go back out and do what you were doing. Because before the shelter-in-place orders were there, you already saw the economy starting to bottom out because people were afraid. And people are not going to cease being afraid unless we get the rate of spread of this virus down. Now, one way to do it, there's now a perfectly good model. We've seen enacted in Korea, in Taiwan, in Iceland, supposedly in New Zealand, and a couple other places. 
massive ramp up of testing. So they have 10x the kind of per capita testing that we've had in the U.S. And then the only people who have to go into lockdown and quarantine are the people who have the virus. And so once that's true, if you go to Korea, they're not in lockdown. Kids went back to school. People went back to work. The economy's recovered. They haven't had nearly the negative impact that we have. And it's because they stopped this rate of spread of the virus by getting the people that were infected out of circulation. What we have is not nearly enough testing. So all the people with the virus, both asymptomatic and symptomatic, are out in circulation. So we have to go into general lockdown. And the president is kind of pushing for as soon as possible, let's just lift these orders and everybody go back out. But you know what's going to happen. Unless we have a massive ramp up of testing, everybody's going to go out. They're going to get each other infected. It's going to start rising again. And then we're going to go back into lockdown, back to square zero. So that way won't work. I say the number one rule of virus economics is you have to slow the rate of spread of the virus to fix the economics. I think it's as simple as that. And I, we're dawdling. We've wasted a lot of weeks and it looks like we may waste several more, but if we want to get out of lockdown and have the economy come back, we have to do testing or find other ways to slow the rate of spread of the virus. That segues to my next question perfectly. Your academic research focuses on human activity in natural settings to find economic explanations for how people behave. Right now, nothing is natural about how we behave. Will this change the chemistry of how society functions when we are out of lockdown? Mm, that's a fascinating question. And I, I would say nobody really knows the answer to that. How will this experience change our, our behavior and our attitudes once it's gone? It's possible that the answer could be very little. You know, if you look back, there was a massive influenza borderline pandemic in 1957-58 that's virtually forgotten. Nobody remembers anything about it. I would say it hasn't changed our behavior one iota. That said, my son, the same one of Vice President Joe Biden now, asked us, is this the biggest thing, he asked my wife and I, is this the biggest thing that has happened in your guys' lives? And we thought for a second, and, and we say, yes, actually it is. And then my wife said, I think this might be the biggest thing that has happened in anyone's lives since World War II. And I talked to a buddy of mine who talked to his grandparents, who they lived through World War II, they lived through the Depression, they lived through all this stuff. The, his two grandparents said this was the biggest thing in their lives. They didn't remember World War II or the Depression feeling like it was as, as impactful as this. So I wouldn't be surprised if it changes our attitude and our behavior. I hope when we recognize the way that some of the disparities in our society these days, whether it's income or by race or by healthcare, availability of healthcare and stuff like that, those things have made this crisis worse. And especially for the groups that were already hard hit before, I hope that that will open some doors, maybe, let's call it, on the policy side to trying to address some of those root causes. So if we ever get a thing like this again, 
it won't have the kind of disparate impact that it's that it's been having. Agreed. I know you're busy. I just have a couple more questions. Let's go back to your time at Yale. You were a member of the Yale Debate Association. You and your debate partner won the American Parliamentary Debate Association National Debate Team of the Year in 91. You beat one of the biggest assholes ever to be a U.S. senator. Can you tell our <laughs> listeners who you beat and with what topic? <laughs> it was Ted Cruz, who was at that time... A, he was one year younger than me, and, and he was at Princeton. It wasn't a one-time thing. The team of the year is determined over the course of the whole season. So we beat him over and over. Uh, as I used to say, it was, I, was, I, was the, I was the poor guy's kryptonite. <laughs> and the way that we would, the, the way my partner and I would do it is, even then, you underestimate Ted Cruz at your peril. The, the guy's really smart. The guy's an excellent debater. Even then, he had a lot of pride, you know, self-pride. I would kind of make fun of him. And you don't debate each other face-to-face. You debate in front of a judge. And so I would talk to the judge, and I would get the judge to laugh at Ted's argument or at Ted's. He was often, you know, the same stuff. If you watch him on C-SPAN, he had a lot of the same gestures, you know, the lift, the fist, how dare you? You know, and many of our rounds would end with Ted red in the face saying, how dare you say that about me? And I'd be like, yeah, we got him again. You are amazing for beating up on him. Next time you come back, I want to talk about Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart. I want to ask you about the Obama presidency because we are all so nostalgic about that time. Can you just tell me a story about a meal you had or a laugh you shared? Give me some hope that there is hope on the horizon for the next president. <laughs> well, you know, I miss the guy a, a great deal. And I think the, the whole country does. I still remember the very first meeting. So the financial crisis had begun and it was December of 2008. So President Obama had been elected and it was the transition and they were running the transition out of Chicago. And so it was the first meeting and all the economic advisors came to town and we had a big snowstorm and so you couldn't get a cab. So Paul Volcker, who's, you know, almost 80 years old at that time, and he's about six foot a million, is traipsing through the snow. He had to take the subway in, you know, so we all get in there and it's one disaster after another. We have each person's briefs president-elect Obama, I'm telling him about the housing market. It's a catastrophe. You got $700 billion of negative equity of people who are underwater in their mortgages. They might walk away. The house prices are already down. This is the biggest shock to household wealth, bigger than 1929, biggest ever in the history of the country. Tim Geithner, the secretary of treasury to be, says half the financial institutions of the country are probably insolvent. We may have to ask for another $800 billion of TARP, you know, because they they used up this one. And I mean, the GDP is collapsing. We're going to need the biggest stimulus of all time. It was horrible, horrible. Okay. So first we go through and then Obama's like, is it too late to ask for a recount? And, you know, and we kind of laugh. So the meeting finishes and, and I go up to him as we're walking out. And I said, Mr. President, that's the worst briefing that the incoming president has had since 
Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, maybe since Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And he looks, and he's not even joking. And he says, Goolsby, that's not even my worst briefing this week. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, you do not want this man's job. So, you know, for whatever it is, he carried himself with a certain dignity and he confronted some major problems facing the country, both of crisis and of of extended forms. And I think, you know, if you go look on the merits, he was really right on the merits on all those big things. And that's that's one reason I miss him every day. You and the rest of us. One more question before I let you go. I always end it with a question that starts. I have to ask if you could tell one person in Washington right now to shut the hell up, who would that one person be? <laughs> 100% it would be the president of the United States. Are you kidding? I cannot convey the care with which everyone in a normal administration takes the president's words. They would obsessively be like, "You, we cannot write that into the speech because what if that ends up being mildly wrong? What if that's fact-checked? It would damage the president's credibility. There's virtually nothing that's taken more seriously than the words that come out of the president's mouth. The fact that the best thing that the president's defenders say about his statements are, we'll pay no attention to that he says a lot of things, is just completely out of my universe. I cannot understand where we're, we've got to get away from that. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Please give your amazing wife, Robin, a hug for me. Austin Goolsby, thank you so much for your time today. You bet. 